0: NPR News in Washington, D.C. This is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill is stepping down after her comments at a congressional hearing on anti-Semitism caused an uproar. And rising interest rates mean the big spending days for tech are over. Find out what that means for the economy
1: the overall loss of employees within the high-tech sector, it's been a mass firing of over 281,000 employees fired since 2022.
0: Plus, we talked to Emma Stone about her new movie, Poor Things, and there's always the puzzle. It's Sunday, December 10th. News is next.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Severe storms tore through Middle Tennessee Saturday and spinning off at least one tornado. At least six people are dead and dozens injured. Tens of thousands without power this morning, not only in Tennessee, but also in Alabama and Georgia. Rose Gilbert of member station WPLN in Nashville assessed the tornado damage in Dixon County, Tennessee.
3: I'm here on Freeman Loop Road, dixon county tennessee which was hit by the tornado first things first just tons of trees down lots of branches in the road some whole trees uprooted in fact i can see uh, a tree that's fallen on a mobile home right up ahead and in fact there's so many branches broken that the the air just smells of pine sap some twisted sheet metal caught up in tree branches Power lines have been affected as well, repairmen have been going along the road with trucks and spotlights kind of searching out for that damage, and overall, Just a lot of debris
2: everywhere. Multiple tornado warnings were up last night in Tennessee for a storm system that is set to bring strong winds and as much as four inches of rain to the East Coast beginning tonight. With the clock winding down on the UN climate talks in Dubai, the summit's president, Sultan Al Jaber, says the uh, negotiators are making good progress, just not fast enough.
4: Work faster, work smarter. Work
2: harder. Al Jobber speaking to journalists today as negotiators begin tackling some of the more contentious issues, such as the future of fossil fuels. He said failure and watering down the ambition of the deal that they're working on are not options. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is thanking the U.S. for Friday's veto of a Security Council resolution, calling for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. Briefing his cabinet today, Netanyahu said an end to the war would prevent the elimination of Hamas. Israel is facing demands to bring a halt to the fighting. The U.N. Secretary General said today that he will not give up on a ceasefire. The French military says one of its warships stationed in the Red Sea shot down two Houthi drones off the coast of Yemen. Here's NPR's Eleanor Beardsley.
5: Since the war between Israel and Hamas began in October, the Houthis have launched dozens of ballistic missiles and armed drones aimed at Israel. The Houthis are also capitalizing on their location at a bottleneck of one of the globe's busiest shipping lanes to attack commercial vessels they see as tied to Israel. A week ago, they attacked three ships. A U.S. Navy destroyer shot down several missiles and drones. They hijacked what they said was an Israeli-owned cargo vessel in November. Over the weekend, the group announced it will target all ships in the Red Sea en route to Israel as long as Israel's assault on Gaza continues. In a statement Sunday, Hamas hailed what it called the Houthis' courageous decision to ban ships heading to Israel. Eleanor
2: Beardsley, NPR News, Tel Aviv. And this is NPR News. This is
6: 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Unusually mild temperatures are in store around Boston today with highs in the 60s. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noy says rain will develop this afternoon.
7: Steady rain fills in this evening and becomes heavier after midnight into tomorrow morning. The height of the storm, 4 to 9 a.m. tomorrow, where downpours, embedded thunder and damaging wind gusts will swing through. Rain totals 1 to 2 inches with localized flooding, wind, Gusts out of the south, 40 to 50 miles per hour for many of us, up to 60 miles per hour on the south shore and Cape. That will mean scattered outages and damage. The rain wraps up mid to late morning, and the wind gradually eases with falling temperatures through the 40s during the day tomorrow.
6: Maine's congressional delegation is calling for the Army to investigate the events that led up to the mass shooting in Lewiston in October. Army reservist Robert Card killed 18 people in a bowling alley and restaurant. He still had his weapons despite having recently left a psychiatric hospital. The delegation's announcement comes shortly after the politicians met with family members of the shooting victims in a meeting in Washington. Cambridge will keep its ticketing policy for another year, but is doubling the cost of those tickets. City councilors launched a test this past year in which cars parked on the wrong side of the road on street cleaning days would get a $50 ticket instead of getting towed. State legislators approved the city's request to raise the tickets to $100. Cambridge Day reports that the number of cars not moving for street cleaning has more than doubled in recent months. Boston's first all-electric hotel is opening this summer. Citizen M's fossil fuel-free 399-room hotel will be on Newberry Street in the Back Bay. It is 46 degrees in Boston, some dense fog around this morning. Then, as you heard, rainy today, windy, highs in the low 60s, rain and wind continuing tonight with thunderstorms, and rainy and breezy tomorrow as well. This is WBUR.
8: WBUR supporters include American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at AJWS.org.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, good morning. The University of Pennsylvania's President Liz McGill resigned yesterday, just four days after what critics have called disastrous testimony on Capitol Hill by McGill and the presidents of Harvard and MIT. They spoke Tuesday before the Republican-led House Committee on Education and the Workforce for several hours about their response to anti-Semitic incidents on campus. Their measured responses have led to calls for all three to resign. NPR Sequoia Carrillo joins us now to talk about the story. Hi, Sequoia. Hi, Aisha. So, this feels like a quick turnaround because the testimony just happened four days ago. So, how did this all unravel so quickly?
7: Even though this hearing turned national attention to Penn and Liz McGill only a few days ago, she's been in hot water for quite some time. Students, alumni, donors all started to raise concerns back in September after an event on campus hosted speakers who had a history of anti-Semitic comments and behavior. Fast forward to October 7th and the Hamas attack and the Israeli military response in Gaza, tensions grow even higher and these calls are echoed even louder. In November, a group of staff members even received disturbing emails calling for violence against the Jewish community. So when this testimony about anti-Semitism went so poorly, even more donors jumped on board, one threatening to pull $100 million. Things were going to happen quickly. And yesterday, McGill submitted her resignation. A few hours later, came word from the student newspaper that the president of the Board of Trustees had resigned as well.
0: Let's talk about this hearing itself. Like, why did Republicans in the House call for this hearing?
7: The House committee called these three presidents to Capitol Hill to discuss the rising tensions on their campuses and their responses to it. At Harvard, for example, the most widely covered incident was a letter signed by students in the wake of the October 7th attack, which held Israel entirely responsible for the unfolding violence. That prompted outrage from donors and alumni And the part of the hearing that's definitely made the most headlines is an exchange between Harvard's President Claudine Gay and Republican Representative Elise Stefanik over free speech. And freedom of speech on campus is often tied up in the broader culture wars playing out in American politics. But in this case, it really became a problem for everyone. Pressure started to mount on all sides. The Biden administration, congressional members, donors, it snowballed.
0: So now that McGill is gone at Penn, what about the two other presidents, Harvard's Claudine Gay and MIT's Sally Kornbluth?
7: MIT's board actually issued a statement on Thursday saying that they stand behind their president. But at Harvard, Gay is facing similar calls to resign. She issued a statement after the testimony to clarify her responses, explicitly saying that calls for violence or genocide have no place at Harvard, She also apologized on Thursday in an interview with the student paper. She says she's sorry that she got caught up in the exchange on the Hill, focusing on a debate over policy and procedures. But meanwhile, that House committee is now launching a formal investigation. And it's fair to say that this story isn't over yet.
0: That's NPR's Sequoia Carrillo. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. President Biden says he sees shovels in the ground and cranes in the sky as he looks at the projects funded by the bipartisan infrastructure bill he signed in 2021, and he's drawing a contrast with his predecessor.
2: Four years of infrastructure week, but it failed. He failed. On my watch, instead of infrastructure week, America's having infrastructure decade, decade.
0: That's Biden in Nevada on Friday announcing $8.2 billion in federal funding for 10 major passenger rail projects across the country. NPR National Political Correspondent Mara Eliasson joins us now. Good morning, Mara.
9: Good morning, Ayesha.
0: So passenger rail is not as sexy as sending astronauts to the moon, but it is a lot of money, billions of dollars going to states. Um, Is it something that's going to get people worked up and maybe get them to vote um, for President Biden?
9: Well, that is unclear and not necessarily. You know, President Biden has made sure that a lot of federal dollars from infrastructure legislation go to create jobs for non college educated workers, often in red states. But polls show a lot of voters don't know anything about this, or when they do see, for instance, $1,400 COVID relief checks in the mail, which not a single Republican voted for a lot of them think they got the checks from donald trump who wasn't even in office so it's hard for biden to get this message across
0: Uh, biden likes to refer to uh, trump donald trump as the former guy uh, if he talks about him at all but he went after him by name in las vegas last week um or this past week Uh, do you think that's a new tactic
9: Yes, I do. But when an incumbent is as unpopular as Biden is now, with Trump beating him in the polls nationally and in key battleground states, he has to try to make the election a referendum on his opponent. And we know from polling that the biggest motivator of voter behavior these days is something called negative partisanship. That is, people go into the voting booth motivated to cast their vote against someone, not necessarily for their own candidate. Um, And uh, that's what he's got to do.
0: Uh, So tomorrow, Biden heads to Pennsylvania. Meanwhile, Trump is due to testify in the New York civil fraud trial against him and his company. But it doesn't seem like, uh, you know, not being out on the road campaigning is really denting Trump's approval ratings among Republicans, right?
9: Not so far. And in some ways, you could argue that all of these indictments have increased his support inside the Republican Party, made his core supporters even more energized and devoted to him. But we have no idea what will happen as these cases grind on, including the criminal trials for mishandling classified information, for trying to overturn the election. What happens to public support? What happens to independent voters and swing voters if Donald Trump is convicted? We have never seen a campaign like this. We certainly have never seen a presidential campaign waged from the courthouse steps. But that is what Trump will be doing month after month after month.
0: Uh, The U.S. vetoed a U.N. resolution calling for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Arab governments condemned the veto. Are American policymakers in sync with the American public on Israel and Gaza?
9: Look, polls still show majority American support for Israel, but there definitely are big disconnects, especially inside the Democratic Party. You just heard about the college president who was forced to resign. Young voters, voters of color, Arab American voters, all very important parts of the Democratic coalition are unhappy with President Biden's steadfast support of Israel, and it's not just voters. Democratic members of Congress, more and more of them are calling for a ceasefire or for making aid to Israel conditional.
0: Okay, in the th- about 30 seconds we have left, what's the latest on aid to Ukraine?
9: Well, the latest is that there is no more aid to Ukraine, and there probably won't be for the rest of this year. Republicans are blocking it in Congress. Some of them share Trump, Donald Trump's animus toward Ukraine and positive feelings toward Vladimir Putin. Other Republicans don't want to vote for aid to Ukraine unless they get big concessions from Democrats on U.S. southern border policy. And meanwhile, Vladimir Putin is very happy. One Russian propaganda said on Russian state TV, well done, Republicans. That's good for us.
0: That's NPR's Mara Eliason. Mara, thank you so much. You're welcome. When voters in New Hampshire look at their presidential primary ballots next month, they're going to see a lot of options. And not just the candidates you've heard of. NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith was recently in Manchester for what's called the lesser-known candidate form.
10: Richard Rist is a business owner from Maryland, frustrated with how divided the nation has become. His solution? Run for president. Because why not? Do you see a clear path?
11: No. No, I'd be lying if I said that. Do I hold out the possibility that I could grab some traction? Yeah, I do.
10: He was wearing a Navy sport coat and a floral tie. His adult son was there to support him. But when Risk turned to take his seat on stage, he suddenly realized he was going to be sandwiched between a man wearing a big black rubber boot on his head and a candidate named Paperboy Love Prince, whose outfit evoked a wish-granting genie.
11: Oh my gosh, I have to go see who's next yeah, to me. You have to go
10: 20 it? presidential candidates came out to share their ideas. They ranged from deeply I'll earnest, like Donald Picard from Cambridge, form. Massachusetts.
12: When I began this rather quixotic journey a few months ago, I had as a stretch goal that I would be participating in a presidential debate. And here I am, <laughs>
13: like, wow. Um,
10: to what one yeah. hopes was performance art.
13: Vermin Supreme will take away your guns and give you better ones. <laughs> and these better ones okay. will shoot marshmallows, but they will still be lethal.
10: That was the perennial candidate, Vermin Supreme, known for the booty he wears on his head. In a lot of states, it's really hard to get on the ballot. In New Hampshire, there's a $1,000 filing fee, and anyone can run, including Republican Peter Jeddick, a firefighter from Cleveland.
8: You can actually run for president here. That's why we have all these people.
10: He's trying to get attention for his ideas, moving the government out of Washington, D.C., and dealing with the debt. But he also has the kind of optimism that even some better-known candidates are fueled by.
14: Well, I'm not going to be Trump,
15: but I think I can move up there with, like, Nikki Haley and uh, those guys, you know.
10: When it was all over, Richard Rist had answered questions about gun control and the conflict in the Middle East and also promised that a vote for him would prevent the zombie apocalypse. He declared the evening a success, because if people were looking at the colorful candidates on either side of him, and they were, then they were looking at him too. Tamara Keith, NPR News.
0: listening to NPR News.
6: Thanks for joining us this Sunday morning here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818. Coming up in about 15 minutes, you'll get a report from Jerusalem where Hanukkah celebrations are especially tense this year. After that, it's time for the Sunday puzzle. All that and much more ahead on Weekend Edition here on WBUR.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and change makers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity, move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And The Huntington with The Heart Sellers by Lloyd Suh and directed by May Adralis, set on Thanksgiving 1973 through December 23rd, HuntingtonTheatre.org.
2: I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Tens of thousands of customers remain without power following severe storms, tornado warnings this weekend that left at least six people in Middle Tennessee dead. The storm sent some two dozen people to hospitals and left homes and businesses damaged. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres is vowing not to give up on a ceasefire in Gaza. He spoke today at a forum in Doha after the U.S. on Friday blocked a Security Council resolution calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. And President Biden is due back at the White House tonight following his campaign trip to Los Angeles. He's returning to Washington after his administration approved an emergency sale of ammunition to Israel as a deal for further USA to Israel and Ukraine is held up in Congress. I'm Giles Snyder, with NPR News.
3: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done, no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples Stores or
0: staples.com. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Borrowers in the U.S. have been hit with higher interest rates this year as the Federal Reserve tries to push down inflation, and tech companies are no exception. Last week, Spotify announced it will cut roughly 17 percent of its workforce in its third round of layoffs this year, and the company's CEO blamed higher borrowing costs as one of the reasons for the cuts. But Spotify isn't alone. Many tech companies borrow borrowed, and borrowed money when interest rates were low to grow business. Mark Williams is a professor of finance at Boston University's Questrom School of Business, and he joins us now. Welcome to the program.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, Happy to be here.
0: So why are higher interest rates hitting the tech industry so hard in particular? Like, why is tech more vulnerable to this?
1: You know, if you think about high tech, high tech's all about growth. And for them, the formula of success for growth was really taking on lots of debt. So they borrowed big and they spent big. They took that money. They hired a lot. They put a lot of money in advertising and research and development. And they hoped for growth. And over time, profit came.
0: And so the, the hope is that you borrow and then it pays off. But if interest rates get higher, um, it makes it harder to borrow. And if you haven't already paid off You know what you already borrowed? Does that make sense?
1: Right. Their strategy was really risky. In 2021, it didn't seem so because rates were at ultra-low levels, 50-year lows, not seen since JFK was president. So they just loaded up on debt. It was really cheap debt, almost at zero interest rates. So within 18 months, by 2023, rates had skyrocketed. The Fed increased rates 11 times to now ultra-highs, not seen since, well, 22 years ago. So... They're in a pickle.
0: And are tech companies the main industry hit hard by this? Are there other companies, or like, um, or are there certain tech companies in particular that will be most impacted?
1: Well, high tech in particular, because they are a growth company in a growth industry, so they focus on taking on leverage and lots of debt to grow fast. Uh, I'll give you examples: uh, Amazon and Google and Microsoft and Meta, which of course was Facebook. All those companies just in the last year have fired about 49,000 people. So, in essence, the, the overall loss of employees within the high tech sector, it's been a mass firing of over 281,000 employees fired since 2022.
0: But it seems like when you're talking about Amazon, you know, Meta, Google, don't, don't these companies have lots of money? They're not just startups.
1: Right. And, and that's a really important point. So, Amazon clearly, and Google, and Microsoft, and Meta, they're all gonna weather the storm. But really, the story is about these small startups. And those are the ones that are really caught in this vice grip. Interest rates are really high. They can borrow less now. Uh, Their growth rates are definitely going to slow down. Many of the startups won't get the existing funding they need. These are novel drugs, new therapeutics that may never go to market because they can't get funding anymore.
0: So you mentioned biotech, and, I, and I, I'm thinking you're, you're, when you're talking about development of therapeutics and stuff like that, but, but what exactly is going on with biotech?
1: Well, biotech itself, back in, in 2019 and 2020, when interest rates were low, they, they received huge evaluations, so they were able to get lots of funding. Now, with a high interest rate environment, many investors are skeptical of the level of risk and willing to take it, so these valuations now have been dropped And many of these biotechs uh, are having and struggling to find valuations and actually funding for their operations going forward. And they need a lot of money with R&D and investing in hiring to, to really get their product to market. So the concern is that that spigot has been turned down dramatically with higher interest rates.
0: So, forecasters and analysts say higher interest rates are here to stay at least for a while. Um, and and you talked a bit about this, but but what are going to be the consequences for tech and biotech companies?
1: This is of concern. You know innovation is key not just for developing new therapeutic drugs that that help people, but also startups create new jobs. So new job generation, green shoots, and so forth appear to be actually going to be silted. And then these lost opportunities I mentioned earlier on the therapeutics.
0: That's Mark Williams, professor of finance in the Questrom School of Business at Boston University. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Well, thanks for having me and have a nice holiday season.
0: our conversation with actor Emma Stone and director Yorgos Lanthimos, we had to clear something up. How have you both been handling spoilers for this movie? Because there's a key plot point about 20 minutes in.
14: I hate it.
16: Yeah, it make, it, it upsets him.
0: Okay, that's good, because we had an intro where we were going to discuss the whole <laughs> <laughs> But we still have some explaining to do, spoiler-free. First, these two have worked together a lot. Notably on the movie that brought director Yorgos Lanthimos a lot of Oscar attention, the favorite. Their new movie, Poor Things, is also unconventional and bold, with great roles, especially for women. Based on a book, it begins in Victorian-era England in a sprawling mansion that's home to Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone. Let's just say she's an original awkward, immature, and initially we meet her in relation to the men around her, like Dr. Godwin Baxter, played by Willem Dafoe.
17: She's an experiment.
16: Good evening.
18: Her brain and her body are not quite synchronized,
13: but she is progressing at an accelerated pace.
0: Emma Stone has described Bella as possibly the greatest character she'll ever play. What about Bella? enchanted both of you because it, it does seem like she was very enchanting
16: she was uh, everything about her I, as a character she creates herself so there's just a lot of joy in in her kind of existence and her development and she's just a character that i really deeply love and have such appreciation for in her just existence at all
14: what about you I was the same like like every other character in the film and in the novel that we adapted. I was completely taken by her. I couldn't stop following her. And she's totally disarming. She doesn't share the contact codes that we do. She doesn't have any shame. She doesn't have any preconceived notions about human behavior. It's just impossible to, you know, control her, which is, you know, what most people were trying to do. And so she's totally Exciting.
0: When you come in to Bella, she feels kind of like a toddler, or she walks like like a wind-up doll. She spits <laughs> out any food she doesn't like. It's very physical. Um, how did you approach that physicality?
16: Yeah. Well, we that was all pretty practical. Jorgos and I just kind of rehearsed and, and would try things and find things, and we sort of talked through how her walking or her movement would develop but that was it. I was it was truly just like trying it, looking at it. That seems right. That seems wrong. Try it this way. That kind of thing throughout.
0: Your girls, it, like visually the the movie is striking. You shift between black and white and color, and then there's like this fisheye lens that you're you're shooting through at times. C- can you talk to me about the visuals for the story?
14: I immediately imagined that Uh, that we should build this world for her because she sees the world in a very different way so i thought that somehow the world we would build had to reflect that and that goes from you know building all the sets in a studio and making them feel not realistic necessarily but slightly magical and, uh, you know, filming and the lenses we used and the way we filmed it, I think, just um, augmented that. We're trying to uh, enhance the feeling of this world being very unique and uh, to her.
0: There's a lot of sex in this movie. <laughs> a lot of sex. Why was that important in telling this story?
14: Well, I- I'm not sure that there's more sex than all of her other experiences, uh, but certainly sex is important, I hope, to us all. You know, the same way that she experiences, you know, food, education, you know, politics, other people, friendships, she should experience sex as well. And with the same lack of shame and the same lack of judgment and on on anything, uh, that sex should be the same way and you know i think for human relationships sex and romantic relationships are extremely important so that we couldn't shy away from that and we would be totally disingenuous to the character i think it's a reaction to also people maybe treating sex with you know such reluctance and uh, having made it into a taboo at least in cinema
0: one of the things that did stand out to me was the way because, she, you know, Bella has no shame about sexuality and doesn't allow men to put ownership onto her sexuality. It's kind of the way you experience men. Men love it when you are young and dumb. <laughs> <laughs> but then as you get older, it's not that you're less sexy. It's that you're less malleable. You're less
16: controllable.
0: What do you think of that? That's I mean, this I'm just saying that's the way I feel.
16: <laughs> I completely understand it. I think that's a huge theme of Bella's exploration and journey. And that's, you know, that's also the part, you know, later on when she's in Paris, when she's in the brothel and she's asking, would you not prefer to if you know we chose instead of the men choosing? And she's saying, well, <laughs> some men don't like that. All of these, these themes around sex that go from being something that should just be you know, freeing and about connection and about feeling good into something that's more of like a power dynamic or a power struggle. Because I think, obviously, sex and power have huge overlap.
0: A movie like this, is different. Like, it's not like your regular popcorn movie that you're going to... I, like, is it tougher to make these sorts of movies? Or do you have, like, at this point, you've proven yourself, you got the Oscar-nominated movies, and, and people just say, here you go, here's a blank check, do what you got to do. Is that, Or is it <laughs> tough to get these made?
14: Well, it's never like that. But, um, you know, it was very difficult the first 12 years, but then it became very easy <laughs> after that. <laughs> you know, after we, we made The Favorite, which was, you know, had a certain kind of success, and it was a larger scale film than what i'd done before uh and i didn't blew it uh i guess i didn't blow it um he's greek <laughs> i guess we got the opportunity to um make this film which you know was difficult to put together in, in the beginning but then finally we 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 did it
0: you two obviously have a great rapport and you've worked together several times now. Did that affect the way you approach this project? Do you think of yourself as creator and muse?
16: I don't think of it as that. Do you? No. It's just I, I think an easy dynamic between the two of us. I mean, even when it's not easy, and even when we have to fight about something or whatever, it's just a nice like knowing each other as well as we do know. It's a, it, it simplifies everything. I have such admiration for what he makes and the material that he's drawn to, and I, I think we just have oddly similar sensibilities for how different we are as people.
14: Yeah, and it's not by chance that he's a producer on on the film because he's just involved in you know every aspect of it from from early on. So, and she created the character, and it's the most important thing of all. So. Um, in in some ways, is more of a creator than I'd I. I'd say
16: am. I'm the creator and he's yeah. the
14: muse. Yeah, that's what I just said. But then you, <laughs> you, anyway, added to it. No, you messed it up because it would have been so genuine, and then you blew it.
16: <laughs> that's how you say blew
14: it. Yeah, I know.
16: <laughs> do, I,
14: do I often make that mistake?
0: Actor Emma Stone and director Yorgos Lanthimos. Their new film is Poor Things. Thank you both so much.
14: Thank you. Thank
16: you for having us.
0: Old City District of. In the walled Old City District of Jerusalem these days, the sounds of Hanukkah celebrations. This after the atrocities of the October 7th Hamas attack, and despite the ongoing war in Gaza, Jerusalem is a disputed city sacred to both Jews and Muslims. And as NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports, the holiday scene there is tense.
14: A
5: Jewish family celebrates Hanukkah in front of their home, which is amid Palestinians in what's known as the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem. Children spill out of the house. They light candles, sing traditional Hanukkah songs, and dance in the street. Israeli soldiers who patrol nearby gather around to celebrate with them. Even before the October 7th Hamas attack, there was a security post on top of this house. Israelis have been moving into the Muslim quarter over the years, despite opposition from the neighbors. Israel captured the old city from Jordan in 1967. Palestinians seek all of East Jerusalem for a capital, but Israel's government has helped Israelis to settle here. Just across the narrow, cobbled street, a Palestinian shopkeeper looks on. Rahed Salah, speaking through an interpreter, says things have become even more difficult since October
7: 7th. The occupation generally is
4: just pressing us a lot, and there's discrimination because they get to celebrate their holidays, while I
7: can't always go in and pray in Al-Aqsa Mosque. He's talking
5: about one of Islam's most sacred sites just blocks away on these narrow stone streets. Muslims say access to the mosque has been severely restricted since October 7th. Salah also says Israeli soldiers are checking IDs and preventing Palestinians who don't live here from entering the old city. On this day last week, the streets of the Muslim quarter are almost deserted. Arab shopkeepers have been told to close early ahead of a march by a far-right Jewish group through their neighborhood. Jewish students sing Hanukkah songs outside their religious school. 18-year-old student Ilan Talub tells NPR through an interpreter that he may join the march.
15: The
4: march isn't supposed to be a provocation or anything like that. It's supposed to lift spirits and help people get to the Western Wall. Sometimes they go through the Jewish quarter and sometimes they go through here. There's no difference in how much these two areas belong to us. This belongs to us and that belongs to us.
5: I asked Taloub if any part of this city belongs to Palestinians.
2: Okay. No. No. Awesome.
5: At the Western Wall, a site sacred to Jews, 57-year-old Israeli Evelyn Jacobs has come to pray. If you love
7: something you want it in its entirety. And the Jews are going to say that the Bible has gifted it to them, and so it belongs to them, and they love it with passion, and they're ready to live and die for it. So how could two religions share the same land they love? Not
5: all Israeli Jews agree. I called Sahar Vardi. She's part of a group called Free Jerusalem and does not think Israel can continue to rule over millions of Palestinians. She says she still has hope unless any of us actually believe that either all Palestinians or all Jews in this piece of land are going to disappear, and I don't think any of us believe that, um, then eventually we're either going to die or learn to live together. Vardy says the shock of October 7th could make people understand that there has to be a peaceful solution because, she says, a military solution does not work. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Jerusalem.
0: This is NPR News.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell is joining more than 20 other AGs in pushing for expanded background checks for firearms purchases. The group supports a proposal from the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives that also would crack down on gun trafficking. The regulations would apply to gun sales at shows and online and would provide law enforcement with more tools to track the movement of guns. Senator Ed Markey is in Dubai. The Massachusetts Democrat is joining a bipartisan group of senators to discuss Congress's commitment to countering climate change. It's part of the U.N. Climate Change Conference that runs through Tuesday. It's 48 degrees in Boston and a rainy, breezy day in store tonight. Rainy and windy tomorrow. Rainy, breezy, a chance of thunderstorms.
19: WBUR supporters include Emerson Colonial Theater, With Just For Us, Alex Edelman's one-man show returns to Boston direct from Broadway December 15th through 17th, EmersonColonialTheater.com, and Lake Champlain Chocolates, celebrating the season with organic, fair-trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at LakeChamplainChocolates.com and Good News Garage, over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996, tax deductions and free towing goodnewsgarage.org.
5: Hi there. It's Margaret Lowe, the CEO of WBUR, here to say thank you to everyone who gave so generously during our year-end fundraiser. We are blown away by your support, and we promise that was the last fundraiser this year. If you haven't had a chance to give yet and you'd still like to, please go to wbur.org and click on the donate button. It's the one with the little heart next to it.
3: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world. And every purchase supports NPR's high-quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older. NPRWineClub.org From StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us as always is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and the puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hey, Will.
4: Good morning, Aisha.
0: Okay, Will, so could you please remind us of last week's challenge?
4: Yeah, I said a muffler is part of an automobile. It's also the name of something you can wear. I said, think of two other parts of automobiles that are also things you can wear. And these two words have the same number of letters and the same first two letters in the same order. What are they? And the answer is a hood and a hose, both parts of cars, and you can wear them.
0: Oh, my goodness. So, I mean, a lot of people got this one. I would not have gotten it. (laughs) But out of over 1,200 correct entries, Xavier Smith of Tucson, Arizona, is our puzzle winner. Congratulations, Xavier.
11: Well, thank you very much.
0: So how long have you been playing the puzzle?
15: It's been about two years now.
0: Okay, so two years. So that's Mm -hmm. not too long. And this is your first time winning?
4: This is my very first time, yes.
0: Oh, okay. Well, see, you know, you have you put in a little bit of work, so you're not one of those people who won on the first try,
15: but you <laughs> haven't know. been
0: playing the whole time. So. Oh, goodness,
15: that does not happen to me. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and so what do you do when you're not playing the puzzle?
15: Well, I am pretty much retired now, although I do some uh, executive protection stuff. I uh, teach Krav Maga. I uh, study math, uh, Russian and Chinese, just kind of doing my thing.
0: Okay. So, I mean, it seems like you're good with language, so I feel like you're going to be good with this puzzle.
15: Oh Well, we'll see. Sometimes (laughs) y'all throw a curveball in
4: there, so uh, we'll see. You never know about those curveballs. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, Xavier, I have to ask, are you ready to play the puzzle?
4: Yes.
0: Okay. Take it away, Will.
4: All right, Xavier and Aisha, I'm going to give you clues for two words. The first one has six letters in which the middle letter is doubled. Drop one of the double letters and read the result backward to get the answer to the second clue. For example, if I said drooped and French Impressionist Edgar, you would say sagged, S-A-G-G-E-D. That means drooped and it has a double letter in the middle. Drop one of those G's and read the result backward and you get Degas, who was the uh, French Impressionist.
0: Oh my gosh. Oh (laughs) no, that sounds
4: complicated. Here we go. Number one, Texas home to the Cowboys. And your second clue is a leafy lunch. Mm. What The Texas city that's home to the Cowboys is? A Dallas, so
20: it'll be a salad.
4: Salad. Excellent. Soldiers and basketball or football. Sport. That's right, troops and sport. Sort of music for Bob Marley and impatient. Mm, eager. That's right, reggae and eager. Faints from extreme emotion and blizzards.
13: Faints from extreme emotion.
4: Right. Uh, Especially over love. Oh, Oh.
15: Oh, okay. Swoons and snows.
4: You got it. Did one better than and a train station. A mm, uh, depot and on uh, Topped and, top. top and depot is correct. Candies, and goulash and gumbo dishes. Hmm.
15: Candies
4: and
21: goulash,
0: goulash and gumbo dishes. dishes,
4: and they're dishes that have a lot of things thrown in the meat, uh, potatoes, sweets and stews. Oh yeah. You got it. Sweets and stews. One who works the soil, and ignited again as a candle killer and relit. You got it. Here's your last one. To move unsteadily from side to side and joint in the arm. Hmm. Wobble and elbow. You got it. Good job.
0: Oh my goodness, Xavier. Like, let me tell you. (laughs) You did such a great job, and I couldn't get it. I was I was I waiting was,
1: for that curveball, though. Yeah, I was waiting oh for it. Oh,
0: my God. The, the curveball was the puzzle for me, but you did a great <laughs> job.
1: So, that so
15: was how, fun.
0: How do you feel?
15: Without words right now, but I feel pretty good. Thank you.
0: Okay, well, for playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org puzzle. And Xavier, what member station do you listen to?
11: KUAZ here in uh, Tucson, Arizona.
0: That's Xavier Smith of Tucson, Arizona. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle.
11: Thanks so much for having me, guys.
0: Okay, well, what's next week's challenge?
4: Yes, it comes from listener Steve Baggish of Arlington, Massachusetts. Take the phrase winter season, add a letter of your choosing, then rearrange all 13 letters to spell three related words. What are they? So again, the phrase is winter season, add a letter, rearrange all 13 letters to spell three words that are related. What are they?
0: When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, December 14th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will.
4: Thank you, Aisha.
0: Who doesn't love a good book this time of year? It gets real dark real early, so you may as well stay inside curled up with a great story. But what story to dive into? Books We Love, NPR's list of the best reads from the year has hundreds of recommendations. Today we bring you some fiction suggestions from four of our
17: colleagues. This is Asma Khalid. I'm a White House correspondent for NPR and I also co-host the NPR Politics podcast. The book I want to shine a light on is called The Covenant of Water by Abraham Verghese. He's a doctor who also happens to be a novelist. And the story in this book is on the surface, a family saga that spans three generations who are dealing with this strange condition of drownings. But ultimately, the book is really a lot deeper. It's a book about a bygone era in India with lessons of love, pain, and human understanding. It's a book that I could not put down because the storytelling and the writing was so beautiful and the characters were so complicated. And ultimately, the book gives you a way to find hope in the face of repeated tragedy. It was one of the best books I have read about South Asia in years.
10: I am Netta Ulubi, an arts correspondent here on NPR's Culture Desk. I'm recommending a novel called Western Lane. that was a finalist for the Booker Prize. It's about a young girl in a London suburb She's 11, the daughter of Indian immigrants, whose family has become emotionally frozen and fragile after a devastating tragedy. The girl, Gopi, starts playing squash just by chance, and it turns out she's a child prodigy on the level of Tiger Woods or the Williams sisters. The author, Chetna Maru, is herself a squash player, and she's an enthralling and graceful writer. The Booker judges singled out Western Lane especially for its language praising its, quote, crystalline prose that also feels warm and tender, which can be
22: a difficult balance
10: to strike.
22: My name is Lina Muhammad and I'm a producer for All Things Considered. I'm recommending C. Pam Zhang's novel, Land of Milk and Honey. It's set in a future where climate change becomes so bad that a mysterious smog just engulfs the earth. Crops die, biodiversity vanishes. In the middle of all of this, a super rich guy buys a mountain top on the border between Italy and France, and he hires a chef. She's cooking up these lavish meals using incredible and sometimes disgusting ingredients. But it's not just a story about food. It's This exploration of human nature, the allure of pleasure, it left me questioning the balance between survival and indulgence, and just how much we're willing to pay for pleasure in a world that's dying.
23: My name is Corey Turner, and I'm a correspondent covering education. The book I loved this year is called The Making of Another Major Motion Picture Masterpiece by Tom Hanks. It is the fictional story of the making of a kind of movie I don't think Hanks has ever made, a comic book superhero blockbuster. The book is a love letter to the movies and the people who make them. The heroes of this story toil largely behind the camera, the producers and assistants Director and driver, hairstylists and hard-working clairvoyant grabbers of coffee and tacos and everything else the makers of movies want or need to keep from starving or giving up or losing their minds. There's a humanity to this book that has always been Hanks' greatest gift as an actor. Remember that scene in The Money Pit? (coughs) When a baby-faced Hanks is trapped in the carpet of his collapsing life? I, I'm here, my, my chest is constricted, I can't shout. This book is kind of like that, hilarious and tragic, ridiculous and heartbreakingly sincere, all at once.
0: That was Corey Turner who suggested the making of another major motion picture masterpiece. Lena Muhammad recommending Land of Milk and Honey, Neta Ulabi, with Western Lane and Asma Hallett, who recommended The Covenant of Water. For more ideas on what to read, you can find the full list of books we love at npr.org slash best An estimated 1 in 12 children in the U.S. will experience the death of a parent or sibling before age 18. A national network of bereavement programs for children called Camp Erin has supported grieving kids for over 20 years. Craig Lamote, a member station GBH, spent a day with one of those camps in Boston. And will note there is a mention of suicide in this report.
24: A group of about 35 children, ranging in age from 5 to 18, stand in a circle, along with parents and volunteers for Camp Erin Boston. The camp's director, Jennifer Wiles, gives instructions.
25: So step into the circle if you have lost your mom.
24: Several kids and adults step towards the center.
25: Step into the circle if you've lost a sibling. With each
24: added relation, the group draws closer together in their shared grief all of them have lost someone close.
25: So we're going to spend today talking about that person, remembering that person, honoring that person, checking in about how we're doing with this hard thing that has happened to us.
24: There are 34 camp Erin programs around the country, and ordinarily they happen in the summer with traditional camp activities like canoeing. But this year, the Boston camp added this additional day at the Museum of Science. My name is Lou, and I'm Dear All's grief counselor. The kids break into smaller groups and start out by taking turns answering icebreaker questions, like favorite ice cream flavor. My name is JJ and Rainbow Sherbert. Lou opens it up for the kids to suggest their own questions, and eight-year-old Arlo Lloyd is done beating around the bush. His question gets right to the point.
0: Tell people who
17: your loved ones. My name is Ed and my loved one was my brother, Ty.
24: Viv's mother, Liz Moen, is standing nearby listening. Other parents have gone to another room to meet with their own grief counselor. But Viv wants her mom to stay close. Viv's 18-year-old brother died by suicide in August.
10: Viv's just having a hard time understanding her grief. And so we're trying any avenue possible to try to help her process what happened.
24: Moen says it's incredibly hard to parent a child who's grieving the loss of a brother while at the same time facing her own grief at losing a child.
10: I could be sad and Viv could feel okay and my husband could feel angry or you know, you shuffle all those emotions around and having to support each other while you're all in those different spaces is such a challenge.
24: On top of learning to deal with all those emotions, the camp makes time for fun. The kids have the chance to enjoy the exhibits at the Museum of Science. And then it's back to learning something a little more personal. Can
25: someone tell me Maybe a camper could tell me what coping skills are. Evelyn. When you, sit, when you go, breathe in and out. That's an awesome coping skill, breathing in and out.
24: The camp also gives grieving kids a forum to honor a lost loved one. The group decorates candles that will be used in remembrance later in the day. Arlo Lloyd shows his creation to his mom.
22: I like my candles so far. I think dad would like it?
24: Yeah. I agree. Arlo has spelled out DAD and added stickers he thinks his father would have liked.
12: His favorite color was brown and mom found this brown lion so I put it under DAD.
24: Arlo's mom Alexis says her own mother died when she was six and there was nothing like this for her.
21: I mean I think
10: that I had a pretty traumatic experience and my whole goal as a mom is to make sure that Arlo doesn't have a traumatic
12: experience
10: as much as possible, right?
24: Arlo says it's been good to meet other kids here who are like him.
12: I have friends, but they don't really, they've never really lost somebody. So it's good to have friends who understand.
24: Camp Aaron, Boston's director, says that's the point. No one should feel like they're going through this alone. For NPR News, I'm Craig Lamolt in Boston.
0: If you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe.
3: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean. Offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com From Made in Cookware, Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs, for chefs, and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at MadeinCookware.com and from the listeners who support this NPR station.
6: Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR on this Sunday morning. It is 48 degrees in Boston coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition continues. WBUR
26: supporters include Babson College, where an
6: MBA or specialized master's
26: equips you with the skills to take action and lead with confidence. Gain the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset at Babson, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report and 10th best college in America by The Wall Street Journal, babson.edu slash gradprograms. And The Home for Little Wanderers, creating better, brighter futures for kids because no child should go through life alone. Thehome.org. I'm Nageen Farsad in for Peter Sagal. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we asked Dakota Johnson what it was like growing up with famous parents.
3: Well, I would tell you different things that I tell my therapist.
12: Okay.
26: (laughs) This week, we'll ask our guest Fred Schneider of the B-52s to spill his innermost secrets. That and more on the news quiz from NPR.
24: Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR.
15: I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH tisbury and 89one WBUH WBUR-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Week in Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. In this hour, we talk to media experts who argue the press is underplaying Donald Trump's threat to democracy. And one thing that could reduce climate change, reflecting sunlight away from the earth. Plus, backup quarterbacks are stepping up this NFL season. We hear from someone who's been there.
11: You truly don't get the credit like trying to keep the train moving. So you have to be even keeled from that perspective and sometimes remove your emotions knowing, you know, at least you were able to help the team move forward and ultimately win games when it mattered.
0: It's Sunday, December 10th. News is next.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Nashville Mayor Freddie O'Connell says first responders are working to get into hard-to-reach areas following last night's powerful storm system that tore through Middle Tennessee, leaving behind damaged homes and businesses and killing several people. I'm heartbroken to report that we know of at least three lives lost as a result of this devastating storm. Based on the damage, I'm declaring a state of emergency for Nashville Nashville and Davidson County. A total of six people are confirmed dead after multiple tornadoes were reported last night. Tens of thousands remain without power. The same storm system is set to bring strong winds and as much as four inches of rain to the east coast beginning tonight. Interstate travel for abortion care still rising after the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. From member station KUNM, Megan Myskowski reports that New Mexico has seen a dramatic increase in demand for abortions from out-of-state patients.
27: The Guttmacher Institute is An abortion rights organization that collects data on abortion services. In a recent report, it says the first half of the year saw a huge increase in abortion-related travel. That's largely because of bans that have sent pregnant people out of their own communities to states that protect access to the procedure. The study says three quarters of abortion patients in New Mexico in the first half of this year came from outside the state. The number of abortions in the state also increased 279% since 2020. That's not the case in states like New York or California that don't share borders with states that have bans. For NPR News, I'm Megan
2: Maiskovsky
27: in Albuquerque.
2: With Israeli military operations pushing Palestinians in Gaza further south toward the Egyptian border, Egypt's foreign minister is reiterating that Cairo has no intention of taking in refugees from the conflict. Here's Pierre Scott Newman reporting from Tel Aviv.
20: Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's office has downplayed a leaked Israeli intelligence report outlining an option to transfer Palestinians displaced by the war in Gaza into Egypt's Sinai Desert. Israel says that possibility is only, quote, hypothetical. Speaking to the Washington, D.C.-based Atlantic Council, Egypt's Foreign Minister Sameh Shukri says pushing Palestinians into the Sinai
7: is uh, totally unacceptable because that's a violation of international humanitarian law but also because it, uh, it is an effort to liquidate uh, the Palestinian cause.
20: The UN says about 85 percent of Gaza's 2.3 million people have become internally displaced since the conflict began. Scott Newman, NPR News. Tel
2: Aviv. Voters in Egypt are going to the polls today amid the ongoing fighting in neighboring Gaza. Voting is spread out over three days. Official results are not expected until next week, but Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi is expected to win a third term. This is NPR News.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell is joining more than 20 other AGs in pushing for expanded background checks for firearms purchases. The groups supporting a proposal from the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives. That proposal also would crack down on gun trafficking. The regulations would apply to gun sales at shows and online and would provide law enforcement with more tools to track the movement of guns. MIT students want people to know just how close the globe is to reaching a critical level of warming 1.5 degrees Celsius. The students have created a countdown clock they're projecting onto a building in Cambridge the number of days left is measured in a very Boston metric. Sports. WBUR's Paula Mora has more.
7: 60 Bruins games, 6 Patriots games, and 30 Red Sox games that means six months until the Earth's temperature increases 1.5 degrees Celsius on average. Scientists estimate it's a point of no return for extreme weather and species loss. Nora Miller is a student at MIT. She created this year's Climate Clock message as an alert, but also to inspire action. Trying to get the message further out to an average person, out to children, out to everyone will convey a greater like collective action. MIT is projecting the clock during the United Nations Climate Change Conference. For 9.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moore.
6: UMass Boston is getting a big gift from locally-based sportswear brand New Balance. The company's donating $10 million to the university to establish a sports leadership institute. The donation will expand UMass Boston's existing sports management program. The gift builds on a $5 million donation from New Balance in 2020 to start the program. It is 50 degrees in Boston, rainy and breezy today. More of that tonight and tomorrow. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Public Welfare Foundation,
19: committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Ayesha Roscoe. Good morning.
23: Let me make it clear His conduct is unacceptable. He's unfit. And be careful of what you're going to get. If you ever got another Donald Trump term, he's letting you know, I am your retribution.
0: That's former Governor Chris Christie at the Republican presidential primary debate Wednesday night. Donald Trump wasn't there, but he was both a subject of the debate and of media coverage afterward. How to cover Trump is a question that's haunted the media since Trump's surprise win in 2016. A 2018 study showed that Trump received around $2 billion in free media and got substantially more coverage than his opponents aiding his campaign. Now Trump is dominating headlines again as he faces federal indictments and civil lawsuits while campaigning at the same time. Watching this all play out are Brian Kloss, a writer for the Atlantic and professor at University College London, and Margaret Sullivan, a writer for The Guardian. They join us now. Welcome to the program.
18: Thank you. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me.
0: So let's begin with a general assessment of how the press is covering Donald Trump right now. How would each of you rate the quality of the coverage of Trump, his legal proceedings,
18: and reelection campaign? and and let, let's start with Margaret. Well, I think that it's not great, um, but it's getting a little bit better. Since the very beginning, when he first came down the escalator, um, there was this sort of nonchalant, you know, both fascination with him and also not really understanding um, that he could actually get elected. And, you know, so now it's been many years throughout an entire administration and we have another campaign I do think that the mainstream press is starting to reflect the consequences of a second Trump term a little bit better, but I don't think they're there yet.
28: Yeah, I've got a pretty pessimistic outlook on this because I think that what's happening with Trump is that a lot of the things that he's doing, both in terms of what he's posting on Truth Social, his social media network, and what he's saying at rallies, is not cutting through to the ordinary voter. And that's important because some of the stuff he's saying is the most extreme rhetoric of any presidential candidate in the last four or five, six decades. There was a a rally in October where Trump floated the idea of shooting shoplifters on site. So anyone who commits a petty crime gets killed. It's an extrajudicial killing that the leading contender for the Republican nomination floated. And right after that, he floated the idea of joking about Um, Paul Pelosi being nearly beaten to death with a hammer. And there was no coverage of this for three days in the New York Times, at which point it appeared on page 14. I mean, I I think this is the kind of stuff where there's a really big failing of of not meeting the moment of understanding that magnitude is important, the scale of the rhetoric, the extremism of the rhetoric, not novelty. And I think what the press is doing is it's thinking, people know Trump says crazy stuff lots of the time, and that's fine. But it's still very important that they see it
0: so i guess how do you balance that from people who would say he's a candidate if you give him a whole whole bunch of coverage is that actually helping him um uh, to
18: spread his message right i think it, it you know you make a great point and i think it has a lot to do with how the story is told what the framing is how much context you bring to it you know not to pick on the associated press because they do a great job in many ways but There was a story, uh, I think first reported either by the New York Times or the Washington Post about how Trump and his allies were basically planning to uh, use the military to quell protests on the street and to invoke the Insurrection Act on day one in order to do this. This is really outrageous stuff. And the AP headline says, Trump hints at expanded role for the military within the United States, a legacy law gives him few guardrails. And it's, you know, it's this kind of very quiet presentation of something that's completely outrageous. It's like, It's not really getting across to the public.
0: There was this thought that Trump got too much coverage in 2016, airing his rallies, for example. But it seems like now both of you are saying that the press needs to really
28: highlight these things that he's saying. I think that the criticism in 2016 was apt that they gave him too much coverage in this $2 billion of free airtime because Trump was not the leading candidate at the time now he is the most important candidate in the republican party by far he's very likely to have a significant chance of of retaking the white house and so the magnitude is there right it's important to cover him and i think the risks of covering him are no longer that people will find out about donald trump's vile rhetoric it's that they'll forget how vile it was because When you see Trump through the prism of just New York Times headlines, as opposed to some of his truly deranged truth social posts, I mean, really, really deranged, where he's talking about executing, you know, a a top general in the United States, people need to be reminded that this is not normal.
0: Are you seeing anything now that reminds you of the coverage from 2016 on Hillary Clinton's emails?
18: Yes, I, th- I think that the coverage of Joe Biden's age strikes me as similar to the sort of butter emails situation that we had with Hillary Clinton. Yes, it was a legitimate subject. It was a legitimate story. And just as it is that Biden is as old as he is. And by the way, Trump is only, what, three and a half years younger. Um, But that kind of constant drumbeat, I think, is very similar. And I think that it's off balance and pretty dangerous.
0: Brian, you know, you you gave some examples of the things that Trump has said and some of the violent rhetoric. Another thing that he has talked a lot about is how he wants to gut the, quote, deep state, you know, basically just civil servants and that he wants to install loyalists.
13: We must pass critical reforms, making every executive branch employee fireable by the president, the deep state must and will be brought to heel.
12: We will stop the radical Democrats from packing the Supreme Court with far-left justices. Um, He
0: wants to weaponize the Justice Department against political opponents. Do you think that it's fair for the media, for reporters to call Trump a threat to America's democracy? Does that make them biased against Trump?
28: So I think that the press has an obligation to be objective, not balanced. And I think that this is a case where, you know, I I study the breakdown of democracy. There is nobody in my field who thinks that Donald Trump is not a threat to democracy. And, you know, I think this is where the press, when it often wants to sort of convey balance to to be seen as fair, is failing to meet the moment. The press has learned this lesson really effectively, I would say, with climate change, right? You don't both sides climate change because the science is clear. So you put on a scientist and you don't put them next to a climate change denier. When it comes to American democracy, because it's partisan, it's not novel, it's not the shiny object, it's not going to generate lots of clicks because it is a repetitive story, but it's by far the most important story in America and in my view, in the world right now, because if American democracy breaks down, The reverberations around the world are going to be catastrophic. And I think Trump is not doing this in the shadows. I mean, we have stories that are just showing there's a
18: plan. We're used to covering elections in which, you know, there's kind of a normal seeming, a pretty normal Democrat and a pretty normal Republican. You don't have that now. So really what we're covering is not a Republican versus a Democrat. We're covering a would-be authoritarian versus sort of a normal pro-democracy candidate. And I think if we reframe our coverage that way, which is a very legitimate thing to do, we get away from that fear of being called partisan.
0: Uh, Margaret, you recently wrote an op-ed titled The Public Doesn't Understand the Risk of a Trump Victory. That's the Media's Fault. Uh, in it, you argue that if the public were more aware of Trump's platforms or, or Trump's positions on issues like immigration or national security or gender-affirming care, that the public might be disinclined to support him.
8: Will carry out the largest
24: domestic deportation operation in American history?
0: Do you think that it's possible that maybe... Uh, uh, a lot of people do understand exactly what, um, you know, uh, former President Trump is offering, and they, they want that.
18: I think that most Americans, at their core, want to live in a democracy. I don't think they want to give that up. And so there may be some agreement on issues, but I don't think that if Americans truly understood that they could lose their democracy, that they would support that
28: you know, a certain part of his base is going to love whatever he says. But a lot of other people, uh, when they see Trump unfiltered, they're they're actually quite appalled by it. And so, you know, this is where I completely agree with Margaret, that when you sort of filter things through the critics say or the both sides zine that sometimes happens, sometimes you just need to print what Trump is saying to people. I think that
18: newsroom leaders, I think they need to get together with their politics staffs and their staffs in general and talk about what I wrote my column about, we we, the public is not getting uh, the importance of this election. They're not getting what the stakes and the consequences are. How can we go about? Um, how can we go about changing that? How can we get across the extreme nature of this? It has to do with emphasis. It has to do with where you put stories, what kind of articles you do, what the headlines are. You know, it calls for a rethinking in newsrooms of how to communicate to our readers and viewers.
0: That's Margaret Sullivan of The Guardian and Brian Kloss of The Atlantic. Thank you both for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
28: Thanks for having us.
0: You're listening to NPR news
6: good morning I'm Sharon Brody it's 918 and coming up in about five minutes here on 90.9 WBUR former NPR producer Peter Breslau discusses his new memoir outtakes stumbling around the world for NPR and later this hour you'll consider another aspect of the legacy of Norman Lear his transformation of TV with his focus on the dynamics of black families
8: WBUR supporters include the Christian Science Plaza. Start First Night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash firstnight. And Lake Champlain Chocolates. Celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates, at local specialty food stores and at lakechamplainchocolates.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. Plymouthrock.com slash WBUR.
2: I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is thanking the U.S. for Friday's veto of a Security Council resolution calling for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. Briefing his cabinet today, Netanyahu said an end to the war would prevent the elimination of Hamas. Israel is facing demands to bring a halt to the fighting. A powerful storm system tore through Middle Tennessee this weekend, leaving behind damaged homes and businesses and killing at least six people. Multiple tornadoes were reported. And this year's winner of college football's prestigious Heisman Trophy is LSU quarterback Jaden Daniels. Daniels was presented with the award during a ceremony last night in New York. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
3: Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And
0: from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News, I'm Ayesha Roscoe. With leaders from around the world gathered in Dubai for the UN Climate Summit, we wanted to discuss an idea that might sound more like science fiction than science. Could humans cool the planet by reflecting sunlight away from Earth? It's called solar geoengineering, and it is something that scientists are working on, even if we don't hear much about it. Peter Irvin is a climate scientist and teaches at University College London. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So can you give us a better sense of what solar geoengineering is?
15: Solar geoengineering, yeah, as you said, describes a set of ideas to increase the amount of light that the earth reflects back to space. And that could counter the warming effect of the greenhouse gases we've been adding ourselves. There's a couple of different ideas. The most promising one would aim to mimic the effect of volcanic eruptions. So some of the biggest eruptions in history like Tambora in 1815, Pinatubo in 1991, the big eruption goes off and the very powerful ones penetrate up into the stratosphere, which is a a high layer in the atmosphere. And there, the particles that they release scatter around the entire planet and then they reflect light away for a couple of years. And in the years after these big eruptions, we see temperatures dip and then slowly recover. And the idea is that we could create that effect, but persistently, to help um, offset future global warming.
0: So how would this work?
15: Yeah, so volcanoes put up a few million tons. The big ones that have this cooling effect put up a few million tons of this gas, sulfur dioxide, into the stratosphere. You could get an aircraft to fly that high dump this gas and come back down and with enough of them you could get millions of tons up we're we're talking tens to hundreds of aircraft so it's not a huge amount and every engineering assessment to date comes to the same conclusion this is feasible and and relatively cheap we could offset basically the difference between where we're headed which seems to be something like two and a half celsius of global warming to where we want to be which is one and a half or to limit it to that much at about 20 billion dollars per year which is a lot of money, but not a lot of money compared to the costs of climate change and the costs of dealing with it.
0: How would sulfur dioxide cool the planet? Like, how does that work?
15: Just like the volcanic eruption, we would be adding this sulfur dioxide gas, which goes on to react in the atmosphere to form these really tiny droplets. And they're so tiny that they effectively stay suspended in the air. And now, this happens in the lower atmosphere. These little particles are responsible for the haze you see on on many days, and they stay suspended till they get caught up in rain clouds uh, and rained out. But up in the upper atmosphere, it's very dry, there's no clouds, and so these particles persist for several years until they gradually, slowly fall down. And so, yeah, uh, this relatively small amount of material that we could put into the upper atmosphere would have this disproportionately large cooling effect.
0: What is the risk from releasing the sulfur dioxide?
15: Well, I I think the first thing to note is this is not uh, an alternative to cutting greenhouse gas emissions. Um, The CO2 would still be there. It'd still be having this warming effect on the planet. And this would only be a temporary cooling effect to sort of offset some of the the consequences. It would also have some side effects similar, well, the same side effects that volcanoes do. Um, The sulfur dioxide adds to acid rain a little it would delay the recovery of the ozone hole by some time. And it would make the sky uh, a little hazier. But yeah, it would have these side effects and they're not good. um, But the question is, uh, it seems that they're a lot less bad than climate change would be.
0: So, um, you know, bottom line, like might this become a reality someday? And like, would all the countries have to get together, major countries have to get together and agree to it? Because it seems like it would affect the entire planet.
15: Yeah, absolutely. You couldn't just create this patch of haze above your own country. It would affect the, the entire planet, this, this stratospheric aerosol geoengineering idea. And so, yeah, the whole world is at stake. The whole world should be involved, I think, in decisions around this. At the minute, we're a long, long way from that. We don't have the planes that could do this. And we haven't done enough research to be confident that it can and work in the ways I'm, I'm suggesting it could. So I think, we're yeah, we're, there's a lot of scientific work to do to sort of establish whether this is a good idea. And then a lot of careful discussion and debate um, to figure out whether and how we can cooperate to, to pull it off.
0: That's Peter Irvin of University College London. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you. And now a peek behind the curtains of how NPR puts its stories together. Weekend Edition's former senior producer, Peter Breslow, spent nearly 40 years at the network until retiring two years ago. He worked both in the studio and roaming the world to bring us sounds and stories from Mount Everest to the South Pole, to a snake pit in South Florida, where he profiled a man who extracted venom for use in medical research.
13: I nudged the microphone to within a few inches of the vibrating diamondback. Finally, the snakes had enough, and quicker than you can blink, he strikes the padded microphone.
0: Peter Breslow's written a memoir about his time here. He clearly made it out of that situation. Outtakes, Stumbling Around the World for NPR. And he joins us now. Welcome back to Weekend Edition, Peter. And and on the other side of the mic this time.
13: Yeah, it's, it feels weird to be on this side, but uh, great to be here.
0: Your book and your memoir is about some of your life before you read NPR growing up but also your time at NPR as a producer. What does a radio producer do?
13: Well, it's it's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. It's kind of like being a reporter except your voice isn't on the air. It really is a lot of reporting, a lot of logistics, a lot of setting up, especially if you're going into some kind of a hazardous situation, you know, figuring out where are we going to be, when, how can we stay safe, bringing all the supplies. If you're going to uh, Sierra Leone to cover the Ebola epidemic, bringing your hygiene supplies, and if you're going to Baghdad, pack your Kevlar vest. There's such a wide range of what a producer is, right? There's show producers, which I did for many years, figuring out what's going to go in the air, what's not going to go on the air, or if news breaks while the show is on the air, how are we going to cover it? And then there's the day-to-day of interviews and figuring out the focus of the interview, and then taking that 35-minute interview that you did and cutting it down to a succinct four and a half minutes.
0: So you guys do, producers do that hard work, because I just get out here and I just talk and talk
13: and talk. Yeah, you really, hosts have it so easy. i just, <laughs> just so resentful. We're just a
0: pretty, I, me and Scott Simon, we're just pretty faces. <laughs> yeah. But you also would be on air, And you write about this trek. A lot didn't go right with this Mount Everest trip.
13: Yeah, it was, um, I mean, it really was the adventure of a lifetime for me. It wasn't quite supposed to be three months, which is what it ended up being. Um, I just describe it as a long, uncomfortable camping trip. We traveled across China. There were earthquakes and landslides. And once we got to the mountain, um, just a long, slow slog up um, the northeast ridge of Everest.
0: You have a description of like when you would sleep, you said that you would wake up and see your breath from the night before, (laughs) like on your body. And you're also like filing stories like that's incredible to me.
13: I guess my goal is always sort of take the listener where they aren't going to get to go on their own, and I was very privileged and lucky to to get to go and actually get paid to go on an Everest expedition.:
20: Big ice racks on either side uh, places that look like they could have avalanches,
13: hopefully not this way. I got my beeper in my pocket. But that's definitely the last way I want to go, It's getting squished in an avalanche. So I made it up to 23,000 feet, but it was still a schlep and a half to get to the summit, which is over 29,000 feet, and um, actually none of us on the expedition made it because there were high winds and we were forced to flee the mountain.
0: Is that your favorite story of all time?
13: that is very high up there. I have to also say that um, that very first trip I did to Afghanistan just after the US invasion with Scott, that was super memorable.
0: And what was it about that experience that has stayed with you?
13: Well, <laughs> it kind of encompassed everything. So, we got to Bamiyan, which is I don't know, something like 9,000 feet up. So, it was kind of cold. And as soon as we got there, we found these two guys who were digging up graves. Uh, They were forced to bury some Hazara people who had been executed by the uh, Taliban. And after the fall of the Taliban, these fellows went back and they were digging up the graves to give them a proper burial. I immediately knew that we had a fantastic open to the peace. Um, But what happened after that, so it's getting dark and um, we don't have a place to stay. So we drive back into town and we find this guest house. And we kind of knock on the door, and the place was full. But the guy who was running it saw these well-off Americans and started to boot out all these men who were sleeping in the place. Um, and Scott and I were kind of like, "Uh-oh!" But also in the back of our minds, we were going, "Well, you know, we don't have a place to sleep tonight. I bet, <laughs> I bet they can find another place." <laughs> anyway, so like, as these guys are all giving us dirty looks a gleaming SUV pulls up. These two guys jump out speaking very good English and saying, um, we're representatives of the local warlord and you're staying with us.
0: These stories, like, they're really incredible. I don't know if I won't be out there and all that. To be true, (laughs) I I, you know, I'm a little more prone to panicking. But you have covered all of these conflict zones. What do you think you have that compelled you to go into those places?
13: You know, I grew up in suburban New Jersey and I guess I was always have been kind of looking to (laughs) break out of that and find excitement. I do want to say that I in no way, shape or form consider myself a war correspondent. You know, the people who really are in the trenches day in and day out for months and years at a time covering conflicts. You know, I, I would tend to waltz into these situations and then waltz back out.
0: I wanted to end with one of the stories that has really stayed with you. Um, is there something that comes to mind that you want to share?
13: So often in these more desperate situations, I try to find some kind of story of hope. And I, I, I found a really great one my last time in Afghanistan, and it was the um, Miraculous Love Kids Music School. This guy, Lanny Cordola, who played with uh, the Beach Boys and uh, a couple of other arena rock bands, and... Um, He read a story about a young girl in Afghanistan whose two sisters had been killed in a a suicide bomb attack. They were selling trinkets on the street, and Mursal was her name. She was 13 when I met her, was also selling trinkets, but she had gone in a different direction, and she survived. And Lanny read a story about her, and he ended up coming to Afghanistan and finding her. And one thing led to another, and he brought some instruments with him, and uh, they started a music school it ended up being mostly uh, young girls and they started playing rock music and lanny because of his connections was friendly with brian wilson from the beach boys and they ended up collaborating on the song love and mercy,
21: love and mercy that's what you- you and your I was standing in a field watching the people
0: there. It's a beautiful song and a beautiful story.
13: Even just sitting here listening to it, I, I get teary eyed. It was it was kind of inspirational.
0: That's Peter Breslow, former NPR and Weekend Edition senior producer and author of the book Outtakes. Thank you so much for coming back to talk to us.
13: Thanks so much, Aisha. This was fun. You
21: and your friends tonight
11: I was sitting
21: in my room and the news came on TV By the people hurt, and it really
0: me. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tornadoes tore through Middle T- Tennessee yesterday. Two adults and one child were killed in Clarksville and three more people were killed in Nashville. There were also dozens of injuries. We're joined now by LaTanya Turner of member station WPLN in Nashville. Good morning, LaTanya. Good morning, Aisha. Uh, We saw deadly tornadoes two years ago in Tennessee, which passed into Kentucky. Now another terrible December outbreak. Can you give us a sense of the scope and intensity of last night's storms?
27: Yes, you're absolutely right. This is the anniversary of that storm two years ago. Now that the sun is up here, it's really clear how widespread the devastation is from these storms. The National Weather Service is reporting collapsed buildings, downed power lines, uprooted trees, and flipped vehicles. And this storm spawned multiple tornadoes that touched down across nearly 100 miles, starting west of Nashville, traveling northeast across a half dozen counties. As of this morning, there's still about 40,000 customers without power and six deaths and dozens of injuries, as you mentioned.
0: Uh, So what do we know about
27: the six people who were killed? In Clarksville, which is about an hour northwest of Nashville near the Kentucky line, Two adults and one child were killed. We don't know much yet about those fatalities, but we've seen photos and videos of how those homes were torn apart. Um, In Nashville, two adults and one child died when police say the tornado blew over a mobile home and caused it to roll on top of a neighboring home A 37-year-old man who was inside the trailer died. His son survived. Next door, the house that the trailer landed on, a 31-year-old woman and her 2-year-old son were killed. Our reporter was able to get to that street, which is Nesbitt Lane in Madison, a community in Nashville, where she saw roofs blown off homes and a lot of downed trees and power lines.
0: (sighs) These tornadoes also went through busy suburban areas where there's a lot of damage, but no loss of life. What have you learned about these areas?
27: Uh, That's right. Another hard hit city is Hendersonville, which is to the northeast of Nashville. An emergency was declared there because of the damage, including many businesses. Our reporter, Paige Flager, talked with employees of a Mexican restaurant that was in the storm's path. Edith Gonzalez had this to say.
10: We were all hiding back there, so there was only the sound of wind just coming through. The shatter of the glass falling to the floor and against the Christmas tree. You had a Christmas tree? Yeah, there's a whole Christmas tree right here on the ground. We believe that's what should stop the glass from flying all the way in.
27: The restaurant lost its windows and part of its roof, but thankfully no one was injured. That's news editor LaTanya Turner of member station WPLN in
0: Nashville. LaTanya, thank you so much. Thank you, Aisha. (laughs) This is NPR News.
6: This is ninety point nine WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The members of the Boston Visiting Nurse Association vote tomorrow on whether or not to authorize a fourteen-day strike. The Massachusetts Nurses Association says the VNA nurses are seeking staffing and wage enhancements to recruit and retain the staff needed to provide care to patients released by hospitals for more intense care at home. Cambridge is adjusting a price point for certain parking violations. The city will keep its ticketing policy for another year, but is doubling the cost of those tickets. This past year, city councilors launched a test in which cars parked on the wrong side of the road on street cleaning days would not be towed away, but would get a $50 ticket. State legislators have approved the city's request to raise the tickets to $100. Cambridge Day reports that the number of cars not moving for street cleaning has more than doubled in recent months. It's 50 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
19: WBUR supporters include Babson College, where an MBA or specialized master's equips you with the skills to take action and lead with confidence. Gain the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset at Babson, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report and 10th best college in America by The Wall Street Journal. Babson.edu slash gradprograms and Chevalier Theatre in Medford Square with vocalist, pianist, and songwriter Matteo Bocelli on his Matteo Tour. December 12th, chevaliertheatre.com.
26: From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa chenoy
17: I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. I'm Tiziana
19: Deering. This is Radio
17: Boston. I'm Scott Tong.
19: I'm Deepa Fernandez. I'm Robin Young. It's Here and Now. And I'm Lisa Mullins, host of All Things Considered. We all thank you so much if you made a contribution to our recent fundraiser. And if you haven't had a chance to, you still can. Give monthly at WBUR.org. Thanks.
3: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From StoryWorth, Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T.
0: MacArthur Foundation
3: at MacFound.org.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News, I'm Ayesha Roscoe. When it comes to football, no player is more important than the quarterback. And this NFL season, fans are watching some not-so-familiar faces. A string of quarterback injuries has forced almost half of the league's teams to rely on their backups. So we wanted to understand what makes a great backup quarterback. For that, we call Charlie Batch. He's a two-time Super Bowl champion who played 15 seasons in the NFL, including 11 as a backup quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Charlie Batch, thank you for being with us.
11: Hey, not a problem at all.
0: So let's get right into it. Like, what makes a great backup quarterback?
11: Honestly, being prepared and being ready. And, you know, sometimes the life of a backup quarterback, you just never know when you're going to play you know when you're in training camp and getting ready for the regular season you know sometimes it's easier because you already have taken starter reps and you just play games but ultimately the longer you sit the longer you go you just have no idea when your number is going to be called and at the end of the day nobody cares whether or not you got you received any practice reps when your number is called you have to go out there and perform and do it at a high level and hopefully that contributes in a team win
0: so like is the prep for being a backup the same as when you're a starter because you've done both in your career
11: yeah I mean knowing how to prepare because I was a four-year starter in Detroit so you kind of lean on that expertise when you're you you, and land in that backup role so ultimately you're preparing understanding the game planning watching the film doing everything that a starter would do now the flip side to that is once you actually go out on the practice field now you're watching the reps from the first team and But then you have to go to the other side of the ball and help the defense prepare. And you actually have to run the scout team. So you're actually running the opposing team's plays in addition to learning your assignment. So these are things that ultimately you don't have to worry about if you are the starter. And sometimes that could be a little bit challenging for some people.
0: What about the mental part of this? Because you're sitting there, you're not the main guy. And so you can sit there and be like, well, maybe I'm just going to chill today. Because, you know, he'd probably be all right.
11: Yeah, you never want anybody to get uh, injury. You know, you never want to wish injury on anybody. But at the in reality, that's the only way you're actually going into the game if somebody was to get hurt. So you have to be able to step in and do some of those things that you know you're capable of doing people always throw that this term out loose. Like, oh, the backup quarterback job is the best job in America because you're not playing. You're getting paid not playing. Like, no, sometimes it's the worst job only because if you're not prepared, you get exposed, and then ultimately your flaws are, you know, starting to be showcased throughout the country when everybody's paying attention to it. So your number may be called in the middle of the fourth quarter, where it's third and eight, you haven't played the last three hours, but yet there's two minutes and 50 seconds on the clock, and you have to go out there and, com- and com- complete a pass for a first down even though you haven't played the entire game you better go out there and make it happen so those are things that you know that's just the life of a backup quarterback in that particular perspective so you just have to be ready for any and everything
0: so we've seen so many backup quarterbacks playing good football this year I you know I'm thinking Josh Dobbs dominating his first game as a Viking Jake Browning of the Bengals last week What are you thinking, like, as you watch them play and watch them step up and do that job?
11: Well, it just goes to prove that you need a valuable backup quarterback. And some teams, because you have a starter that maybe has played a lot, didn't get injured, they choose to look at that position as a less uh, valuable role and if you look at just the manner of the NFL and all these teams you know so you have half the teams in the league only have two quarterbacks you have half the teams may have three quarterbacks so it's just a matter of what, how they value that particular position but ultimately when that guy steps in You want him to keep the train moving, especially whenever the salaries of starting quarterbacks are, you know, where they are now. But then also, this the backup quarterback salaries are starting to skyrocket a little bit as well. But that just shows that there's value in the backup quarterback because you want to make sure, depending on at what point during the season, that you don't fall. Or you know have any hiccups because you want to make sure that you're trying to compete and and do so when you're on a playoff run and ultimately in some cases trying to keep a number one seed so to speak
0: that's charlie batch former nfl quarterback and two-time super bowl champion thank you so much for joining
11: us hey i appreciate it thank you for having me
0: the legendary tv producer norman lear died at 101 years old last week He's known for producing or creating groundbreaking shows with white characters like All in the Family. But he also made shows with pivotal stories of black people in the 1970s, including Sanford and Son, The Jeffersons and Good Times, Times, the 1974 sitcom about a black family living in a Chicago housing project. And while these stories centered black characters and storylines, they were also criticized for elevating stereotypes. Here to talk about Lear's complicated legacy with black characters is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Hi, Eric.
12: Hi.
0: So how did Norman Lear wind up creating so many shows featuring black families?
12: Well, to hear Lear tell it, and I interviewed him for the Smithsonian back in 2016, He and his producing partners were looking to create shows that spoke about real life. And there were also a ton of super talented, underemployed black performers ready to lead TV shows, like Red Fox did with Lear's second hit TV show, Sanford and Son. Now, Red Fox was a stand-up nightclub comic who was cast as Fred Sanford. He ran a junkyard in South Central LA with his son, who was played by Damon Wilson. We've got a clip of Fred arguing with his son about watching too much TV. Let's listen.
23: There's a whole article in here, Pop, about people
20: that have heart conditions just like yourself. And you want to know what the best thing for them is? Yeah, to
0: move their dummy son out the way of the TV. <laughs>
12: These shows had like a double-edged quality to them. You know, Sanford and Son humanized Black people in a poor neighborhood that was known for riots over racial issues. It made stars in white-dominated Hollywood of Black performers like Red Fox. But Fred Sanford was also lazy. He was always insulting his son, calling him dummy. (laughs) He had (laughs) friends who were slow-witted in this way that we had seen in stereotypical depictions of Black people in films and TV from the 1950s and 1960s.
0: The next TV show Lear made that featured a black family was Good Times. How did those depictions change from what we saw on Sanford and Son?
12: Well, this is where things get a little complicated. I mean, Lear developed this history of spinning off breakout characters on existing hits into new shows. So Good Times was built around a character from the hit show Maud, the family's maid, played by Esther Roll. Now, the show featured an intact black family with a mom and a dad the dad played by John Amos and that was considered groundbreaking back then
0: but then how was it received and 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 what did the actors on those shows think about the characters who were created
12: John Amos and Esther Roll wanted to oppose typical stereotypes, but the show's breakout character was the oldest son, JJ, who was played by Jimmy Walker. Now, JJ had these bugged out eyes, he was a womanizer, he wasn't particularly good at school, and he had this signature phrase. He called himself Kid Dynomite.
21: Hello! Aren't you glad you lit your fingers,
5: Duty Walking? Because you got Kid Dynomite? <laughs>
12: As J.J. started to break out, the writers started focusing on that character more, and that led Esther Roll and John Amos to fight with the producers more regularly. And eventually John Amos was written off the show, and then they were back to having a series with the single mom raising kids.
0: Let's talk about The Jeffersons. This show that Lear made, it wasn't about a poor black family. They they were wealthy, and they lived in, as the theme song says, that deluxe apartment <laughs> in the sky <laughs>
12: Moving on up.
0: <laughs> How did this series evolve?
12: Well, the Jefferson started as a Black family who had moved next to Archie Bunker in All in the Family. And Lear says in his memoir that one reason why he decided to take those characters and put them in their own show is because he had met with some Black Panthers who complained that his shows always featured poor Black people. So George Jefferson owned a dry cleaning business, but he had his own hang-ups about race. We've got a clip of George Jefferson arguing with an interracial couple over why they don't fight. Now, in the original clip, he uses the N-word, but we edited it out. Let's check it out. If you two ever really started going at one another, inside of five minutes, he'd be calling you. Don't say it. He
21: said
12: it. Now, you listen to me. We've had lots of fights, and it's never happened. Oh, and don't tell me it never crossed your mind. No more than it ever crossed my mind to say the word hunky to (laughs) Tom. Well, how come you said it just (laughs) then? Exactly. See, they were having these kind of bold conversations that I'm not sure we could even show on TV today. Uh, we should also note that one of the two black writers who was credited with creating Good Times, Eric Monti, has said for many years that he felt like he wasn't adequately compensated or recognized for creating that show or helping write black characters like the Jeffersons on other shows. He sued Lear, he accepted a settlement, but he said he always felt railroaded.
0: So so what do you take away from all these shows when you're thinking about Lear's legacy?
12: Well, you know, of course they were pioneering shows and they were shows that, that were close to people's hearts, including many black people. And they did push the envelope about how black people were portrayed on TV. But we also have to acknowledge the reality that there were some dark moments. And so that just gives us even more appreciation for what Lear accomplished and what the talented black actors and writers that he employed to create these shows, what they also accomplished.
0: That's NPR TV critic Eric Deggins on Norman Lear's Legacy depicting black families. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. When pop culture happy hour host Stephen Thompson watched the Oscars back in March, he had a particularly harsh comment about a Diane Warren song that was nominated.
20: There is no way this song would have been nominated if it hadn't been written by Diane Warren. She is beloved in Hollywood. She spends most of her time writing songs for movies. The Oscars love her for a reason. But this song is so generic. It could have been written by ChatGPT. If you watch the Oscars, time your snack break for when they perform it.
21: That
0: is definitely a hot, hot take. Coming in hot.
20: I'm a rascal.
0: (laughs) So you know, that got us to wondering if he had a point. What would a ChatGPT song sound like? We asked Stephen to play around with the AI tool to see how it performed. And boy, did we get our money's worth. Just take a listen at what Stephen did.
20: Well, I just typed in the words, write a song in the style of Diane Warren, and I got a song that looks a lot like a Diane Warren song, but a little bit more of a ballad. A sample lyric, I'm staring out my window thinking about the way we used to be I remember how we laughed and loved every single moment was so sweet. I think Diane Warren would come up with something a little more artful. Once you get into the chorus though, cuz love don't come easy and it sure don't last forever but I'll keep holding on till we find our way together. Now if you put a little mustard on that you can get yourself into a power ballad pretty easily.
0: Okay.
21: Love don't come easy
20: and it sure don't last forever (laughs) but i'll keep holding oh i lost my key completely
0: keep holding on
20: till we find our way together okay now the important thing to note here Mm. is i have applied no actual talent to this (laughs) it is remarkable how passable some of these lyrics are i think especially when you give it the guideline of write it in the style of a certain artist
0: when you look at, like, Jay-Z or a Kendrick Lamar or a Beyonce, there is something that they bring. It's their experience. It's them being on the cusp of what's hot and new and fresh. And they're also able to, like, do new things that I feel like it's hard for AI to replicate.
20: So this is what is called the uncanny valley.
0: It's the uncanny. The uncanny yes.
20: valley, the difference <laughs> between reality and the yes. virtual world's ability to recreate reality. Yes. That is what is still missing.
0: I don't feel like AI can really recreate a song like H to the Izzo. Right. Right? Because when Jay-Z said cracks in his palm and he was watching the long arm of the law, right? <laughs> AI has never lived that right. life. Yeah, what
20: th- <laughs> all they have to go on is what he has done in the past. Yeah. And you're also touching on the difference between an artist who uses a lot of formulas, yes. and an artist who is constantly trying to say, trying new, things to say new things in yes. new ways. And you mentioned Beyonce. You look at the songwriting credits on Beyonce's Renaissance, and there's like a 100 of them. And yeah. And so you can't necessarily have a computer synthesize a 100 no. different artists together to kind of create that sound.
0: You did Diane Warren. You also asked him about writing a Beyonce song. What did that sound like?
20: Imagine. Do you know the song that Beyonce wrote for the movie King Richard? Yes. It's called Be Alive. And it is much more kind of a little bit closer to, I would say, generic uplift. When I typed write a song about defiance in the style of Beyonce, I got, um, well, I'll go right to the chorus. I'm a rebel, a fighter, a force to be reckoned with. I'm Beyonce and I don't back down. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. I'll keep on pushing, keep on climbing higher. I'm unstoppable and I won't be silenced. First of all, does not rhyme.
0: Doesn't rhyme.
20: (laughs) Second of all, Beyonce occasionally refers to herself in the third person.
0: But not really, But not really. really.
20: Where ChatGPT is most applicable to this exercise is with artists who work within very, very contained formulas. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I often keep going back to that criticism when music feels really generic. I think it's fair to say that this technology is gonna be used for a lot of depressing purposes and it may be replacing some of those songwriters. I think we can agree Beyonce has nothing to worry about. Diane Warren, we'll see.
0: That's Pop Culture Happy Hour host, Stephen Thompson. Thank you so much, Stephen.
20: Thank you, Aisha.
0: Do you think that they could do a Lynn manuel
20: I, I mean, we can try. <laughs> he escaped to freedom, but the fight wasn't done. He spoke out against slavery and won hearts one by one. <laughs> <laughs> that is bad. That
21: is disrespectful. <laughs>
0: This is Week in Edition from NPR News. I'm Ayesha Roscoe.
3: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive, nature.org solutions. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done, no matter where it gets done from ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. This is NPR.
6: Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. Wait Wait Don't Tell Me is next at 10 o'clock here on 90.9 WBUR.
26: WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com and Lake Champlain Chocolates, celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at LakeChamplainChocolates.com, and the Christian Science Plaza start First Night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash first night. I'm Nageen Farsad in for Peter Sagal. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we asked Dakota Johnson what it was like growing up with famous parents. Well,
3: I would tell you different things that I tell my therapist. Okay.
26: <laughs> this week, we'll ask our guest Fred Schneider of the B-52s to spill his innermost secrets. That and more. More on the news quiz from NPR.
24: Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR.
13: I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.